reading of the scriptures from Acts chapter 11, reading verses 1 to 18. I invite your reverent hearing of the word of God and also hearing in faith. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, Peter uh, goes uh, to the church, and uh, they ask him uh, to give an account. And essentially what Peter is going to do here is to give an account theologically as to, uh, as to what has occurred. Uh, and that is a, a very important uh, matter. It's really an essential. Uh, it is a reminder that we should look at everything in life theologically. It's kind of the lens uh, which should govern uh, how we look at uh, all of our institutions, certainly including the church. Uh, presupposes that you know the different systems of theology, uh, uh, but even again, uh, that uh, is a reminder to you as an individual to understand those systems, uh, how they interact, how they clash. Uh, but nonetheless, that's uh, what Peter's going to do in the church. Interpret what has happened in the saving of Gentiles theologically. Uh, and the theology of the event uh, identifies uh, the church as the product of sovereign grace 
absent the distinctions of the Old Covenant. And that's what's so radical. That's what the, uh, uh, the Jews in the church were having difficulty uh, dealing with. Uh, yeah, we understand Christ, but what about uh, the distinctions of the Old Covenant that define us? What do we do with those distinctions? Uh, well, Scripture's going to tell us, Peter's going to tell us. Uh, and it's a reminder that when they tell us, we need to deal with those distinctions uh, in the way that we should. Well, in verses 1 to 4, the church at Jerusalem questions uh, Peter. Uh, they encounter this uh, radical event of Gentiles receiving the Word of God and the blessings of the New Covenant. Uh, unstated in all of that is the uh, sovereign uh, Lord uh, who blesses Gentiles with the same power that He uh, blessed uh, the church in Jerusalem uh, comprised of Jews. Uh, the same power, uh, the same actions of God Again, it is a reminder to us of the importance of the church in the life of the Christian. Uh, Peter's a summon to the church. He doesn't say, well, you guys figure it out. He goes to give an account. Uh, you think about life today. The church summoned you to come and to give an account of some public event. What would you say? Well, the heck with you. Who do you think you are? Uh, need to be very, very careful. Peter goes to give an account uh, because of the importance of the life of the church of which the Lord Christ is head. Uh, and uh, in the Southerns, uh, Peter's going to recount the historic sequence emphasizing that God has sovereignly initiated uh, radical change, verses 5 to 14. Uh, we looked at that primarily uh, last Sunday, the radical change. Here is going to recount it theologically before the church. Uh, and uh, here again, there are hints of uh, God sovereignly at work. That's why we should always think theologically uh, the sovereign working of God, who, by the way, works all things, suffers glory. We, we see that initially in uh, verse uh, 9 of uh, Acts 11. A voice uh, from heaven answered a second time. Uh, you and I know that's repeated again. So on three occasions, a voice from heaven says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider him holy. So what God has done, you accept in the church without any distinctions whatsoever. Uh, if you recall... Uh, uh, the vision uh, included uh, uh, unclean animals. An Orthodox Jew was not supposed to eat unclean animals. God has radically changed that with the coming of Christ. That's a voice from heaven. Divine authority engages Peter. Uh, I remind you of the essential importance of the Scripture. When you read the Scripture, divine authority is engaging you. Uh, a voice is not going to open and speak to you from heaven. It's encapsulated for us in the Word of God. The importance of the Word of God in the life of the church cannot, must not be underestimated. Uh, and the implication to Peter is he's to submit to that divine authority. Uh, everywhere in our culture, 
We're not only questioning authority, we're junking authority. The church has to be very careful. Uh, it, uh, it must give due credence and response to authority that comes from God. And uh, it's interesting here that the change is uh, Trinitarian. Uh, we see it in the work of Christ, validated by the Spirit. It's the importance of Acts 2, the coming of the Spirit. Validating a radical change in the life of the church. And the significance is what? That God has cleansed us in Christ. Uh, it, it is a, uh, a wonderful reminder of some of the essentials of our own theology uh, here at Grace Bible Church. Namely, that we cannot, or let me be more personal, you cannot make yourself acceptable to God. Now that's the theology of almost every religion. It's even a theology that's come into the, uh, uh, to the church. Uh, but I'm just simply reminding you, you cannot make yourself acceptable to God. Uh, only the merits of Christ can and do. It's, it is a very important theology. Only by the merits of Christ are you acceptable to God. Uh, there is no other ground for which God to accept you. Uh, and, and by the way, it's not Christ plus something. It is Christ alone. Only the merits of his work make you acceptable. Uh, and, and some of you are probably saying, well, I mean, most churches believe that. No, they do not. Uh, we'll talk about that momentarily, but uh, what is very, very popular today is Christ plus something. And that's exactly what's occurring in this church, miniature church council as they're examining Peter. What about the circumcision? What about all the rites and distinctions that we went through? Uh, Peter's just told them what well, God has cleansed, uh, except. Furthermore, he has overturned the entire ceremonial law by Christ. You and I know, because of the biblical theology of the Old Testament, that Christ was proclaimed in the Old Testament in shadowy forms of the ceremonial law. But it all pointed to Christ. Now that he's come, it goes away. Let's look at some Old Testament, or pardon me, some New Testament references here, uh, reminding us that the ceremonial law goes away with the coming of Christ and what he has done, and namely that God sovereignly provides provision in Christ to cleanse us. Hebrews 1.3, when he had made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand uh, of the majesty on high because he finished the work. He made purification. Uh, he is our high priest. Now, I would tell you that no other priest can make purification for sin. No other. All are excluded but him. Because none have uh, the qualifications. And all must recede in his presence uh, and give due deference to him and to him alone. But remember what I said earlier, only the merits of Christ who is our high priest. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
cleanse your conscience from dead works. Only He can cleanse your conscience from dead works. Uh, because only He is without blemish before God, who renders a sacrifice of infinite value. Reminder of the fact that what we have in the sovereign cleansing of God is related entirely and solely to the work of uh, the sacrifice offered one time for all time. Never to be repeated. I would commend to you the reality that it is radically unrepeatable, even though some churches do it every Sunday. How can you repeat perfection? Well, you, you, you really ought not, but of course... You and I know that many do. Uh, this is uh, contained everywhere in the book of uh, the Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 15, 9. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Cleansing their hearts by faith. All over the world, people desperate for clean hearts. They try religion. They try substance abuse. They try works. Uh, they try pilgrimages. Uh, I mean, that's enough. Only God cleanses hearts uh, by Jesus Christ through faith. Titus 2.14, reference to Christ who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed to purify for Himself a people for His own uh, possession. Uh, Christ purified us. for his own possession. Only he could do that. Uh, there is no other uh, act of substitution, even though the world is desperate to add to the work of Christ. Why? Because Satan is desperate to add to the work of Christ. Because once he can get you to buy into that theology, he begins to diminish radically the majesty of the work of Christ. And that's something we ought not to diminish. That's why addition to the work of Christ is so dangerous. Uh, Hebrews, uh, pardon me, Titus chapter 2 uh, is, uh, is an allusion to the Old Testament. Uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 25, and I will sprinkle clean water of them and they will be clean. Uh, notice again, so important, who does the sprinkling? God does. Notice the outcome. They will be clean uh, because of the sacrifice of infinite value. Ezekiel 37.23 I will deliver them and I will cleanse them. Uh, how are you saved? By God in the provision of Christ. Uh, and He cleanses in Christ and by Christ. Uh, so, uh, the uh, theological underpinnings of uh, Peter's presentation to the church is uh, that God's sovereign election and power is now at work among the Gentiles, cleansing whom He wills. Sovereignly cleansing whom He wills. By the way, there's a beautiful, if you would in your New Testament, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 20. Beautiful illustration of this uh, that comes from, from Matthew, uh, the 20th chapter. Uh, uh, the context is, is uh, 
a parable on the kingdom of heaven. If you look at first verse. Uh, a landowner goes out uh, to hire some laborers to work in his vineyard. And he hires them, and uh, they come to terms on uh, the wage they're going to be paid. Uh, and uh, if, if memory, if my memory of this parable is correct, uh, that occurs three more times. He goes out after uh, several hours and hires another group, and then another group, and then another group. Uh, and uh, he promises to pay them, and what happens is he pays them all the same. And uh, that unsettles the first group. Well, we've been working all day. These guys come, and some of them only worked an hour. How, how come we don't get more than they get? You see the distinction? Uh, we, we are a bit more prominent. So let's read Matthew chapter 20, verses uh, 12 to 14. These last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. That's a valid complaint. I mean, I, I, I get that. We, we complain sometimes to God. Uh, but notice the answer, verse 13. But he answered and said uh, to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. Uh, but I wish to give to the last the same as to you. And the point is that Christ can save whomever He wills, whenever He wills. Uh, and He saves them by the same power. He saves them in the same way, by the same power. And no one should complain. It's very interesting to me that this controversy continues today, in the life of the church. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a reckoning with the sovereign power of the Savior to save whom He wills, how He wills, and when He wills. And none should complain. How can you save my enemy? <laughs> Again, it's a sovereign power of the majesty of God. Uh, so, Good, good to remember the sovereignty of our Lord. Verses 15 to 18, Peter interprets again the event theologically uh, as an act of uh, sovereign grace. In the previous context, it's God who sovereignly initiates the radical change. Uh, and here, it's an act of sovereign grace. Uh, and the Holy Spirit uh, falls on the household of Cornelius. The comparative here uh, in the text is, uh, is, is very important. If you look at uh, Acts 11, verse 15, uh, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Notice the comparative phrase. Just as He did upon us at the beginning. In other words, the same way. The same way He fell upon us in Acts 2, He fell upon the household of Cornelius. The same God, sovereignly, falling upon those whom He wills. Uh, again, a reference to Acts 2, verses 1-4. to uh, it, is, it is one thing to suggest, as I have, that this is a Gentile Pentecost. But it's more, more than this. Uh, it's more proper to say that the two events are the same. 
Same God. Same outcome. Same effect. No distinction in terms of whether Jew or Gentile. None whatsoever. Again, the application to us is profound. We need to get rid of distinctions. And, and of course, uh, I trust here in our church we do. Because there are none. The saving power of God. There's no qualitative or quantitative distinction. Now, it's also in a radical event of, of, uh, of a historic uh, eschatological fulfillment because prophet Isaiah, for example, foretells the coming of the Spirit. Isaiah 32, 15. The Spirit will be poured out upon high. It's what occurred in chapter 2. It's now what has just occurred in 11. The Spirit of God has been poured out by the sovereign power of God saving whom He wills. Reminded to us that the end times have begun and that God is gathering His end time people. And the ancient distinctions in the old covenant between Jew and Gentile are now erased. They're gone. I mean, I grant you it begins temporarily, or temporarily, pardon me, in Jerusalem and with Jews, but... Uh, qualitatively, the Jerusalem and the Gentile Pentecost are the same. The same Spirit saving by the same power of God. And the Spirit is the distinction. Uh, notice uh, Acts eleven sixteen, And I remembered, Peter said, the word of the Lord. How we used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so that this now applies to Gentiles coming to faith. God cleansing them sovereignly. I mean, we have to have to have a little bit of deference, I suspect, to, you know, what this meant to them. It's so radical, so new uh, to, the, to the Jewish Christians. Uh, throughout their ancient history, there had always been that distinction. I mean, I remind you of the temple. There was a gate in the temple which a Gentile could not pass but on the pain of death. Also remind you that uh, God uh, uh, ripped uh, the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies, symbolizing access to all who believe upon Christ. But we sometimes, I mean, I understand, we sometimes struggle with uh, dealing with radical change. Uh, but God is implementing it uh, by His sovereign power and sovereignly cleansing. I mean, think momentarily of your own heart. It was cleansed by God's sovereign power. Uh, be very careful about adding to that, or you'll confuse your understanding of the majesty of the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the entirety of His provision. Well, let me give you another application. Very important for the church. There are no second-class citizens. It's, it's what's going to bubble up in the book of Acts until they finally have a council in chapter 15. And again, they're, they're still struggling with this. Uh, but there are, there are no, no second-class citizens. I suspect some of them were saying, well, okay, he saved them by his power, but... I'm first in the class. Uh, I sit in the first class section. <laughs> they sit in the second class section. No, God's radically changing. There are no class sections whatsoever. 
That's the point of God ripping uh, the curtain that separated the holy from the holy of holies. Symbolizing equal access, equality of access. Always, always reminded of this when I go to the airport. Those in the first class section get to board first. Well, I'm never in the first class section, uh, you know, so I have to wait. Yeah. And they get all these privileges. I mean, I don't mumble, get what you pay for. I, I get that. My friend, that does not apply in the church of Jesus Christ. God cleanses hearts and all have equal access totally, entirely, completely based upon the cleansing power of a sovereign God. And the radical element is divine sovereignty. Now let's look at 17th verse of Acts chapter 11. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as He gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's why you should be very careful about making class distinctions. We don't have a first class and a second class in the church. Because it's the same God who saves. All men without distinction, sovereignly by His power. He gave them the same gift, and God is the giver. It's the only way any, anyone is ever saved. You vacate His sovereign power. And what he does in Jesus Christ, no one, there's salvation and no one else. Uh, takes divine power and only God gives it. And he does this sovereignly and divine election. And we have problems with that, don't we? Uh, but if you understand your sin, you understand it's divine necessity. Uh, because of your sin, you couldn't save yourself. You were totally unqualified. And therefore, it takes God's sovereign choice and uh, God's sovereignly cleansing those whom He wills by His sovereign power. But the same power saved uh, in Acts 2 is now saving in Acts 11 and uh, continues today. Uh, the controversy, of course, again, is Gentiles coming to faith without becoming Jews, without the venue of the ceremonial law as in Circumcision and ceremonies. Uh, the word, uh, the word, same here. Uh, in some context, uh, in its usage in the Bible, of course, does have a quantitative element, uh, but it's also used uh, qualitatively, uh, as it is used here. In other words, there's no qualitative distinction. Uh, by the way, this uh, important to recognize. It's. Uh, it's based on the, on the Trinity. Uh, Philippians 2.6, Although He, Christ, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He was equal with God. It's the word used here, the same. He was the same as God. How could He be the same as God? Because He was God. So it's a Trinitarian event. Solely, entirely. The same. So the saving of, uh, of uh, Jews and Gentiles done by the same God, entirely by His power, uh, based upon the fact that the Son of God has the exact 
same substance as God the Father, God the Spirit. Absolutely no distinction whatsoever. So that our salvation and the way that we are saved is based upon the Trinity and the equality with uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's no qualitative distinction. No first class and second class in the life of the church. All are the same, saved in the same way, by the same God. Distinctions, again, of the old covenant are over. The new covenant, that's what dominates now. Uh, and the work of Christ terminates the ceremonial law. It is gone. It was a sign. Once Christ comes, the sign is taken down. The merits of Christ alone are the sole distinction, meaning there is no difference in salvation whatsoever. And yet we, we do this all the time in the church. I mean, let's remind ourselves, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. The Apostle Paul is writing to predominantly a Gentile church. So what he says to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Every Christian has the same spiritual blessings. So it's a wonderful reminder of the majesty of being cleansed by Christ and becoming a son by his power, and that every spiritual blessing accrues to you. None are withheld. Another, uh, another text, again, uh, the Apostle Paul reminding the church of the radical nature of what Christ did. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he, make, he might make the two into one new man. So the distinction of the two is now gone forever. There's but one new man by his creative power. And I remind you, his sovereign cleansing. Outcome of this, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The two becoming one. Becoming one divine building of God in the Spirit. No qualitative distinction whatsoever. You know, by the way, there's, there's, to me there's incredible psychology to that for the Christian. Think about the love of God to you. Uh, the world always makes distinctions. It will continue to make distinctions, but not before God. Uh, great reminder of, of theology informing our psychology. Be very careful of disparaging yourself. How God made you. What he made you for. Uh, because even though you don't intend to, you're disparaging uh, the, the, the theology that cleansed you. I mean, Christians should be totally liberated in the majesty 
and that our psychology should be informed by this theology and the majesty of God. So it is a, it's a reminder that now in the coming of, of Christ, now validated by the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2, Acts 11, that there's one venue, one identity, one people, one access now and forever. Uh, just remind ourselves of this. Uh, another uh, epistle of the Apostle Paul, the Gentile church by and large, Galatians, book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one in Christ, part of the divine creation. One. Uh, and that's why we, we, we jettison the distinctions of the Old Covenant. And by the way, we should jettison the distinctions of our culture. We just, I understand we struggle with that, but we ought not because of divine revelation and divine authority. Galatians chapter 6. Verses 15 to 16. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now my, my dispensational friends would say, well, see there, there's an ethnic distinction, the Israel of God. No, there is no ethnic distinction. If the Apostle Paul is making an ethnic distinction in Galatians 6, verse 16, he has undermined the entire argument of the book of Galatians. The moment you make an ethnic distinction in the book of Galatians, you destroy the Apostle's argument. What Paul is doing is reminding us as Gentiles that we are the Israel of God. But my dispensational friends are making ethnic distinctions. I think contrary to the Word of God and contrary to the simplicity of the entirety of the argument of the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia, that we are the Israel of God. Again, the psychology of that is profound. Think, well, I'm not very important. I'm just a... Uh, Whatever, a Christian, but I'm not, I'm, I'm in the third class. No, my friend, you are the Israel of God. You are part of the divine construction of the end time temple. Uh, you are the object of the coming of the Spirit to save sovereignly those whom God wills in divine election, sonship, and all of the blessings. Not one withheld accrue to you. I mean, I, I say that because we, we, we live in an age in which people are struggling with significance. You and I don't have to do that. We are. We are significant. Christ came and ransomed himself for us. And he doesn't deal on the cheap. And he gathers us for his own possession. Uh, because we're identified with Christ, who is, of course, the new Israel. He is our sole distinction. Uh, 
Again, I understand we have a difficult time processing this. Uh, my, uh, if you think theologically, my uh, dispensational friends uh, would contend that at some point God is going to quit dealing with Gentiles. He's going to pick up his dealings with Israel again. Oh, really? So Paul's theology in the book of Galatians is a little bit incomplete. Really ought to think through that. We're the sons of God by faith in Christ. We're the sons of Abraham by faith in Christ. No other distinction. So you want to make one in the future? I've, I'm sorry, I've, I struggle with that, but I ought not. Because the uh, reality of the teaching of, uh, of uh, the New Testament is that we are, by faith in Christ, the sons of Abraham. Uh, we, uh, we struggle with this, uh, you know, beyond uh, future events, but uh, one of the continuing problems in the life of the church is, is, uh, is legalism. I'll give you a compressed view of that, Christ plus something. Well, it's wonderful, uh, Mr. Barisox, you've come to faith in Christ, but now you need to do this and this and this and this. And, uh, and then you will validate the genuineness of your faith. In other words, Christ plus something. In much of the New Testament, it's going to be Christ plus circumcision. In other words... Uh, Vestiges of the old covenant uh, trail into the new. Problem with that is there's no scripture whatsoever that supports it. What's supportive is that God in Christ has shut down uh, the old covenant. It's all new, a new creation. And that creation has begun by the power of God cleansing his people sovereignly. Oh, to have a clean heart. If you're a Christian, you do now and forever. Radical distinction. I mean, I would remind you, uh, even when you confess your sin, you confess your sin because you've been cleansed, not to cleanse yourself. The moment you say, I confess my sin because I'm cleansing myself, you have just added to the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. Yes, you need to confess your sin. Why? Because He has cleansed you. Uh, not because you're cleansing yourself. There is no self. It's Christ alone. Uh, sacramentalism, Christ plus. Yes, it's a wonderful thing. You've come to faith in Christ. Now you need the sacraments of the church to keep you clean. So now it's Christ plus the church. Christ plus the sacraments. What Peter is telling the church in Jerusalem is that God has cleansed us in Christ. Christ plus nothing. Uh, it's a reminder to the church that everywhere in the church we're resurrecting old distinctions, driving a wedge, a very dangerous theology. You and I must be different because of what God has done. Uh, Peter is clear. What God has cleansed, verse 9, Acts 11, no longer consider common or unholy, or verse 17, who am I to hinder God? And that is the point. The moment you begin to say Christ plus something, you begin to hinder God. You begin, I understand, unwittingly to disparage the majesty of the pristine beauty solely and entirely of the cleansing work of God in Christ alone.
Oh, to be clean. Oh, to have Christ. The blessings of, of forgiveness. Now, you and I know the world is always trying to get this right in committees and laws. It's, I mean, it's good it tries. Uh, we need to remember that there's a difference between uh, humans trying to reform themselves and God by his sovereign power reviving us, cleansing us. And grace is the issue, sovereign grace. That we have the ability and the spirit and the clarity of Scripture in grace alone. Now let's, uh, let's shift from cause to the effect uh, in this miniature council in Acts chapter 11 in verse 18. Acts 11 verse 18, the effect of what God has done. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. First, they quiet down. They leave off objecting. It's good because they are submitting to the Scripture. They understand Peter's theological explanation of what God has done. Uh, that God has sovereignly instituted the change. And it's important. Who, who am I to get in God's way? Secondly, they glorified God. The application of His power evokes uh, praise. It's in their confession. God has given to the Gentiles. Notice, God has given to the Gentiles. Also, the repentance that leads to life. Uh, this, uh, by the way, is important historically to account. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, we read, He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as Prince and Savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And now what he did in Acts 5.31, he's doing to Gentiles that God gives to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Uh, the gift here is repentance. Uh, it speaks to radical change, and God gives it. Uh, by the way, it's worthwhile to... Uh, to remind ourselves that the gospel uh, contains a, uh, a summons and a, and a duty for us to repent. Uh, for example, Acts 26, uh, 20 uh, kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also Jerusalem and even throughout all the regions of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should Repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. It's a duty of all men to repent. But the gospel is that God gives it powerful summons to believe upon Christ because of what He gives. By the way, you and I know theologically, I cannot spend any time here, that even the faith, which is a means to apprehend the majesty of what Christ has done for us, is a gift of God. It's not that God does his part and then we exercise faith and repentance. That's our part. And the two come together. No, that's not what this text is saying. What this text is saying is that God does his part in cleansing power in Jesus Christ and then he gives to us faith and repentance by his sovereign grace. The very means, if you're a Christian, the very means that you use to apprehend Christ in faith and repentance, he sovereignly gave to you. And that's why we praise him. That's why we come together as a church every Sunday. 
It's the majesty of God's grace. We have a duty. And He provides the power to meet the demands of the duty by His gift. The gift of faith. The gift of repentance. Uh, and this is what causes the church in Peter, Acts 11, to glorify God. By the way, no distinction in the gift is there. What He gave to Israel in Acts 5, He has now given to Gentiles. So who am I to lay a charge to someone when God is saved by His sovereign grace? In the same way that He saved me, He gave me new life. He gave me faith. He gave me repentance. Everything that I needed, He provided in Christ. Compelling reason to sue for peace and flee to the Savior. And then you learn the theology. Even He caused that in your heart. All of grace. All of grace. He gives the means. And this theology of the giver should capture our hearts in praise and worship. So let's remember the theology. God's sovereignty determines our identity as His end time people. There is no other distinction, geographic or ethnic. There is no first class section in the church. There are simply those who are the product of the beauty and the majesty of the saving power of God in Jesus Christ for whom God gives the gift of faith and repentance. Compelling reason to praise Him, to love Him, to honor Him, to follow Him all of the days of our life.